This is Macro Horizons, episode 129, Into the Summer Dome, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 19th. And as a reminder, the Institutional Investor Survey is still open, and for those who enjoy Ben and Ian's excellent adventure, please participate. It's a meaningful way to provide feedback and help keep Macro Horizons on the air cast just a little bit longer. Thank you. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had a great deal of information to digest, including stronger-than-expected inflation, Powell's semi-annual congressional testimony, and a series of Treasury auctions to gauge investor demand from primary supply. What we saw as a takeaway were several attempts on the part of the Treasury market to push rates higher, but ultimately the bull flattening that has been in place over the course of the last several weeks continued to be the primary theme. It is notable that the reflation trade remains relevant in U.S. rate space, and we can see that with 10-year break-evens at 225, if not higher, throughout the bulk of the week. Now, this reality combined with declining nominal rates pushed 10-year real yields to negative 100 basis points, if not beyond. This is largely a reflection of the building headwinds facing the global recovery, less so U.S.-specific and more broad-based. When we look at other regions and the risk for an increased economic impact from the return of COVID restrictions, it's difficult to conclude that the pandemic is completely over. This observation is made all the more relevant when we put it in the context of what appears to be stalling vaccination rates in the U.S. This notion that we would collectively be able to reach herd immunity has gone to the wayside as we continue to focus on moving forward and reopening the U.S. economy. There's a strong argument to be made that we are actually as reopen as we will be for quite some time, with the one caveat being that the transition from a work-from-home environment to a work-from-work, even if hybrid, environment that will occur after Labor Day will add yet another nuance into gauging the performance of the real economy. In addition to generally dovish comments from Powell, the chair did make the observation that he was surprised by how strong inflation has been over the course of the last several months. Now, this is relevant for two reasons. One is it does provide yet another reason to bring forward liftoff hike timing expectations. But at the same time, it puts the FOMC's overall dovish stance, even if it's less so than at the beginning of the year, 
into the context of they're still dovish, even though we have seen inflation outperform in the way that it has. Uh, while some of those headlines might have been eyebrow raising, the fact of the matter is that the Fed does remain committed to the new framework, which explicitly allows inflation to run hotter than it has in prior cycles and for a longer period of time before the Fed will be compelled to respond. So, Ian, we got Chair Powell's congressional testimony, the 10 and 30 year July reopening auctions, but maybe most notably, another month with a meaningfully higher than expected CPI read. One of the most notable trends in the economic data recently has been the outperformance of CPI. So we've seen that both on the headline and, more importantly, on the core measure. Now, it is relevant to keep in mind, however, that while the market is continuing to debate whether or not this is truly transitory inflation that the U.S. economy is experiencing, for the time being, at least, the Fed is content to characterize it as a temporary and pandemic-related surge in prices. When we drill down into the details of the data, what we see is that there are several categories that have been responsible for the bulk of the upside. Used auto prices have been the most notable, which have effectively increased 30% over the course of the last three months. Now, we know that that's supply chain related, and it has to do with some of the dislocations that were created during the pandemic. And as the real economy normalizes, I think that most investors would look at the auto component as the biggest outlier. The other subcategories that increased included lodging away from home, airfares, restaurant costs, all of which are categories one would assume would be experiencing reflation given what happened in 2020. And this gets at what I would argue is the crux of the argument from those who are more dovish on the FOMC. And that is that the economy has relatively recently reemerged from a period of being nearly completely closed. So during the past 18 months, suppliers, supply chains, retooled to an environment that was defined by extremely suppressed demand. Now that domestically, at least, almost all of the COVID mitigating restrictions we've seen have been relaxed, demand has picked up far more swiftly than those supply chains are able to retool themselves back to what was the pre-pandemic normal to service an economy that was functioning, quote unquote, as normal. So from this perspective, the passage of time will eventually lead to some of these supply-related distortions working themselves out. To say nothing of the fact that we heard from Powell this week that the committee is going to continue talking about tapering for the coming meetings, which, all else equal, points to the wind-down of asset purchases starting sometime right around the beginning of 2022. And this is consistent with our take that the market has already priced in QE tapering as long as the Fed sticks to the consensus timeline, which is for an announcement either at the November or December meeting followed by implementation in the new year. Even if it were to be brought forward a month or two, I don't think that we'll ultimately see a massive repricing as a result of that. Uh, if anything, as we have seen with the market bringing forward rate hike expectations, it wouldn't necessarily be a bearish impulse for the longer end of the curve. In fact, we might simply see the curve flattening extend further and weigh on outright yield levels. And while there's definitely a consensus around the timing of tapering, what's emerged as a debate within the details 
is what approach the Fed is going to take in terms of trimming its MBS buying versus treasury buying. Now, given the performance of the real estate sector throughout the pandemic and what continues to be a very robust housing market, we've definitely heard the observation offered that it would be prudent for the Fed to trim MBS purchases either first or at a bit more rapid clip. Now, we've heard from the Fed that really the influence of MBS buying and treasury buying both help the housing market. So from that perspective, it seems that there's some backing to a simultaneous taper of both asset classes. But nonetheless, it will certainly be a topic that is discussed at the July 28th meeting and something hopefully we'll get greater clarity on both through the Fed speak in August and likely the minutes of the July meeting itself. All else being equal, I think there's a very good argument for the Fed to taper MBS before treasuries, but the Fed's running up against a calendar constraint. If they were to attempt to lay the groundwork and deliver MBS tapering before treasury tapering, that would effectively put the beginning of treasury tapering off into at least the second quarter of next year. And if the Fed's objective is to start backing out of balance sheet expanding QE while it still has the cover of extremely easy financial conditions, it makes the most sense for the Fed to deliver tapering in both sectors at the same time. Nonetheless, Ben, as you point out, this is a question that we've received a number of times. And I would say it speaks more to investors' ongoing hunt for yield than it necessarily reflects a divergence in macro expectations. By that, I simply mean the Fed's participation in the mortgage market has arguably led to bigger impacts on rates than we've seen in U.S. Treasuries. And as a result, participants in that market have been forced to either wait for higher yields or get involved in a market at valuations that they don't necessarily find compelling from a fundamental perspective. Let us not forget that almost by definition, this is what QE is supposed to do. The Fed's objective is to first move investors further out the maturity curve, which is what started in the treasury market, and then the credit curve. So rather than investing in mortgages, investors seeking yield will move to corporate high yield bonds and eventually equities. Maybe even crypto. Oh, doggy coin. But in all seriousness, despite concerns about risk asset valuations and quote unquote market froth, this is in a way exactly what the Fed endeavored to do in order to offset the massive amount of tightening experienced in financial conditions during the early days of the pandemic. So the fact that they've now been able to successfully kick off the tapering conversation and project 50 basis points of rate hikes in 2023 while still leaving financial conditions at effectively their easiest levels on record has got to be something that Powell is encouraged by. We've also seen very little financial stability risk. And while, as you point out, Ben, there are certainly sectors in which one could say that there is bubble risk, for the time being at least, the Fed has made it abundantly clear that they're willing to accept some of that risk to continue to push down the unemployment rate. And what I suspect will prove thematic over the course of the next couple months will be the degree to which the U.S. economy is able to bring in sidelined workers and increase the labor market participation rate back to normal levels. This potential overhang in labor capacity is one of the dividing points among market participants. One camp suggests that once we're past Labor Day, the unemployment benefits start to roll off and in-person learning 
provides the right incentives to get workers re-engaged in the labor force that we will see wage pressures moderate and the unemployment rate actually increase along with labor market participation rate. The flip side of that argument is what if the changes that occurred during the pandemic end up being a lot stickier than we're expecting? That implies a degree of staying power for the current level of labor market participation and that the worker scarcity that we're seeing isn't transitory and won't be reversed once the world gets back to work in the fourth quarter. But even in the case of your latter example, Ian, I would still argue that in that environment, material upward pressure on real wages is still going to be somewhat hard to come by, which then in turn will not translate to the type of true demand side inflation that the Fed is pursuing. Fair to say? I suspect that ultimately, as employers continue to embrace automation and we don't see the return of collective bargaining power driven by unions comparable to what we saw in the 70s and 80s, that it will be very difficult for the inflation complex to reach escape velocity that brings us to a sustainably higher plateau. And I would argue that the price action we saw this week in the treasury market is starting to incorporate, at least on the margin, exactly that reality. After we saw 10-year yields dip below 125, we saw a fairly substantial amount of selling pressure that pushed hens back to and through 140, but rather than a wholesale reversal back above 150 and toward that 160 level, really what we've seen is a bit of a period of stabilization here. And what's most notable about this period of stabilization is that it's taking place in the 125 to 140 zone, not the 150 to 175 zone, which suggests more staying power, at least over the course of the next few weeks, the next month. And it implies that it's going to be from that zone that the market returns from summer and some of these distortions that we've discussed that will be ending around Labor Day will start to be incorporated into valuations. It's also important to keep in mind that there'll be no collective inflection moment for the economic data that we'll see in early September. We actually won't see any of these trends start to materialize until we're well into the fourth quarter, if not the beginning of 2022. And this doesn't hold true simply for investors, but also for the Fed. So monetary policymakers are going to once again be in a situation where they're effectively flying blind, which brings us back to some of the trading dynamics that we've seen in the market recently, where we continue to ignore the realized data and instead are relying very heavily on these forward macro narratives. Specifically, the one that has taken hold over the course of the last several weeks is that as the global economy continues to show differing performances between regions, with a special nod to emerging markets that continue to struggle with the pandemic, that rebasing expectations to a higher level might have been a bit premature, as we saw in the first quarter. And this broad-based recalibration back to a rate range and trading dynamic that was comparable to what we have seen in prior cycles also speaks to the idea that the Fed has shown their hand insofar as they would be willing to respond to inflation if it does end up being materially higher than the committee expected. But for better or worse, I think it's fair to say that none of these issues are going to be resolved in the week ahead. 
After all, it is the third week of July and what many are anticipating will be one of the last quote unquote opportunities to work from home or retain a bit more flexibility, which all else equals should leave the process of establishing a new volume bulge in treasuries as the path of least resistance, at least heading into the July FOMC meeting. Ah, uh, the path of least resistance. A personal favorite route. Is there any other way? Not that I've found. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have very little in terms of fundamental inputs to help guide trading direction. It's in environments such as this that we tend to lean more heavily on the technicals. The bullish momentum that accompanied the rally in 10-year yields back below 125 has dissipated somewhat as the market has pushed forward with what we expect will ultimately be an extended period of consolidation. The bull flattening dynamic is here to stay, at least until we're through the summer, but that doesn't mean that incremental gains won't be increasingly difficult to achieve. In fact, we're targeting an opening gap in 10-year yields at 121 to 122. Now, we suspect that that level will be unlikely to see in the month of July, barring either a disappointment for Q2 real GDP or something more dramatic out of the Fed. One of the biggest questions in the market at the moment is why are treasuries trading in a typical late cycle dynamic when growing expectations for Fed rate hikes lead to weakness in the front of the curve, but an outright rally in 10s and 30s? Historically, this has been price action that emerges once the Fed is well into a tightening campaign. And given that the consensus currently holds that we won't see the first rate hike until the end of next year at the earliest, it is curious that this price action has emerged. We'll suggest that this is a carryover from the market's understanding of how the Fed will respond to inflation if and when it reaches levels worrying to monetary policymakers. In taking a step back, if we think about the last three decades of monetary policy, what what the Fed has routinely done is reinforce this idea that they will step up to combat inflation if and when it occurs. And in many cases, they've chosen to get ahead of any potential reflationary scenario. Now, the Fed has made an effort with the new framework to convince the market that they have changed their relationship with inflation. Now, in this context, the June FOMC meeting and the increase to the 2023 dot plot takes us a step back. And it's fair to say that what the last couple weeks of trading in treasuries has revealed is that the market is viewing the new Fed pretty much in line with the old Fed insofar as their reaction function to higher than expected inflation. This certainly creates a communications challenge for the Fed, especially if they still intend to keep policy rates as low as they can until the unemployment rate reaches record lows or below. Regardless of one's interpretation of the Fed, the primary driver in the rates market over the course of the next several weeks will be more about limited liquidity and summer trading conditions than it will be any wholesale rethink of the macro narrative. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as an astute client recently observed, 
If you run into hard times, just keep on punning. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.